0: So what my goal for you is to have a comfortability with doing the gospel arc at a layer that you know you can keep laying more layers. You learn in layers. So don't try to be master all at once. You actually won't get it until you start doing it. And then you're actually going to see things and push forward in deeper layers as you do it, but it only comes by doing it. Like everything else, I can give you all kinds of information, but that experiential contact uh, that comes from actually doing it is where it's going to start sinking in a little bit. And uh, I think you'll, you'll be very pleased uh, with going through something like this. Now, if you want, you can also just be Frankenstein, you know, the guy who made Frankenstein. You can just piece together, well, I like this. I like what was said over here. I like this over here. Piece together your own thing. That's I'm fine with that. Anything that gets you reading your Bible more intelligently and Christ-centeredly is a win. Anything that moves us away from just good advice, Bible reading, Bible study, which is generally, by default, most methods go in that direction. Um, Why would... Why would most methods go in that direction if there's not an intentionality in the method to take you otherwise? The answer is because the heart instinctively goes in that direction. The heart naturally goes in a moralistic direction. So we need the gospel to actually break up the natural inclinations, the natural directions that we will go in. The, human, the default mode of the human heart is to be moralistic. It's to be your own savior. So obviously you're going to read that way. The enlightenment didn't just happen. Right? It, it happened because that's the way our hearts go. Any major philosophical movement uh, happens because that's the way the human heart goes. Right? Uh, reason is a major way of being moralistic. All right, so here we go. Um, round one, right? Uh, if we were to just visually uh, walk through... Um, some major points in the gospel arc. You'd have an arc. you have pole one and pole two, right, in the gospel arc. Pole one would be what? Anybody that can remember, Del? Yes, so the original historical meaning or context is pole one. So that would be the way you open your Bible, you just entered into pole one. Wherever you open your Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you open it, you're at poll one. You're at the original historical meaning of wherever you're starting, right? Now, that is called the, uh, the original context, right? The original historical context meaning. Now, we know that there's a poll two because God made his word this way. Ultimately, Jesus is the word, so inherently, the scriptures are about him, He's the Word, John tells us. He's the Lagos. So, poll two is assuming that the Bible is not just a bunch of distorted genres. And it's not a Bible that has a million different plot lines. There's one overarching plot line. There's one unifying ultimate story. Some have called it the divine drama. You could call it the history of salvation. But it is the story, the unfolding story of Jesus and his salvation. Pole two. And so we know with pole one and pole two that they are inherently connected together because God is an author in his own right, even though he works through human authors. Okay? God is a meaningful author. He's not an absent author. He's not a ghost writer. He's not just working through inspired human authors. (laughs) He's the ultimate divine author that knows the beginning from the end. He's the divine author of the redemptive works of salvation history that have happened in history. He's the author by the Holy Spirit of inscripturating this whole redemptive drum into something we call the Bible. So the Bible is not ultimately Unger's exhausted history of the world. It's not meant to give you every detail about the Assyrians. It's not meant to give you every detail about Israel. John even said, listen, remember in the gospel, he even said, listen, if there was a library that could contain everything that Jesus did, there is no library that could hold it. But I write these things to you. So every biblical writer is a highly selective writer it's a high the bible is a highly selective theological history and remember when we say theological or doctrinal we're saying interpretation of reality the bible contains redemptive realities redemptive events where god has broken into history not haphazardly but there's actually a, a history of salvation that's happened that the bible's recording the bible records the events And then the Bible gives you theology or doctrine about those events, which means it interprets it for you. So the Bible says, here's what happened, and here's what it means. It does not leave it up to you and me to determine what it means. Because if the Bible did leave it up to us, what would happen? Yeah, we would not, would we interpret it rightly? If we think we would be better than the disciples, right? The disciples are recorded And they're with Jesus, and they are getting it wrong every single time. The crowds are getting Jesus wrong every single time. In fact, almost everybody. In fact, John records it. John or is it Mark? I think Mark records the first person that actually gets it right is a a warrior watching Jesus die because he knows death. And he goes, that's not an ordinary death. Right? Truly, this man is the Son of God. There's the right interpretation, and it came from a Gentile, right, the first one. Fantastic. Okay, so we are looking at the Bible is a highly selective theological history. Everything there is incredibly intentional. Everything is intentionally communicated because God is an author in his own right. Moses might have known what Moses knew was true, but what Moses had written was not exhaustive. What David had written was true, and he knew a little more than Moses, but he didn't have an exhaustive understanding. There's only one author that had an exhaustive understanding of the whole story. That's why God is a meaningful author in his own right. Does that make sense? Now, if he's a meaningful author in his own right, that means there's always a poll too. Just think of it that way. So, you might have Moses at poll one, but ultimately, we're going to get to Jesus and his salvation. So, you're going to do two things in the gospel arc. There's two, and just even now, you can start incorporating it. Wherever you read, you're going to look for gospel threads at poll one. When you're at Pole one, wherever you are, whether you're at James or you're at Mark or whether you're at Genesis, there are gospel threads in Pole one. You read the text. You try to find these gospel threads. You grab the thread and follow it all the way to Jesus and his salvation because we know pole one always has a surplus of meaning in it. It has its original historical meaning. It's true for what it meant and what it, it meant in that time period, but it has a surplus of meaning that's meant to bring you even further into an ultimate reality. For instance, again, sixth sense. Sixth cents. What's that guy's name, the, the boy's name? Matthew McColkey or whatever his name is. You know what I'm talking about? What was his name? Well, there you go. Like, I can't even get my boy stars right, the boy bands right. All right, he says, I see dead people, right? That is poll one. That meant something at that time. When you realize Bruce Willis is dead, you just got poll two. Oh, now you put that lens on, Bruce Willis is dead, and you re-watch the movie. You have a surplus of meaning now all over pole one. I see dead people now busting out with meaning. He was dead then, even though we didn't know it, right? Now, that, now that's why it was so weird. He had this weird relationship with his wife. You couldn't, oh my word, they were never really in the same room. You know, it's just stuff like that starts happening, Right? When Jesus resurrected, it was, I see, it was, no, uh, Bruce Willis is dead, right? And now, now you can, you can not only start with poll one and find a gospel thread because there's a surplus of meaning and pull it all the way to Jesus and a salvation. You can also read backwards. You can put a gospel lens on and look at the text. So now you can go start with poll two, put the gospel lens on, and look at the text you can look at the text and find a thread or you can put the gospel lens on and read backwards and look at the text because of this lens Bruce Willis is dead you're going to see I see dead people it actually has meaning here but it has a bigger complete meaning in light of the story of redemption Does that make sense what would be the most obvious example I mean, let's just pick an ex- obvious example. Um, how about when Moses wrote, uh, lifted up the snake in the wilderness? Right? Everybody, it has its own meaning, right? And then what did Jesus do? He took that and said, that was me. <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Or when Paul says, yeah, when you were baptized into Moses, they were really baptized into Jesus right that's when people go crazy that are siloed bible readers and they say you can't read the new testament into the old testament and the answer to that is well jesus did right Uh, that's how the apostle paul read his bible in fact paul says this are you ready for this you still got pull one, pull two, right? Just if you need a visual, you know, you can have my incredibly graphic, nice visual that I've done on Microsoft Word. You see that? That's just like in the book What that I sent to the publisher. I have this insert cool graphic art here. And I gave them no art because I don't have that ability to do that. But somebody is going to create a really cool gospel art graphic that will be in the book. Okay, so what was I even saying? We were going poll one, poll two. It was really good. What's that? Oh, Paul, Paul. So Paul goes, thanks, y'all. It's part of my sickness. My brain's not really like functioning completely. I'm not like like back yet. But it's getting there. All right, here's poll one, here's poll two. What Paul says, this, he says, when 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 the Israelite leads, reads the Bible, they have a veil over their eyes. Why? Because they only get the original historical meaning. He says the veil is lifted. They actually will read their Bibles rightly. The veil is lifted by Christ. Isn't that incredible? Reread that passage, it'll blow your mind. That, I, did, I spent a lot of time on that in the book. The fact is, if you only read the original historical meaning, you are reading your Bible wrongly because Jesus will say listen Moses wrote about me He wrote about me he says you read he told he tells the people that are religious leaders you search the scriptures you read them you've mastered them you've memorized them you've been catechized in them you know them which way and forward he says but you misread it every single time because they bear witness about me and you don't come to me in Moses And then remember what he said to them? He says, I'm not the one that's going to accuse you. Moses is going to accuse you because he wrote about me. All right? So poll one is the first stop. It's the original historical meaning. But if you stop at poll one, you will be a moralist because you have not connected the full and final meaning into the full and final revelation of God ultimately. And so what we're learning to do is how to do that. Next week, we are diving into it big time. We're going to really look at how to do this, okay? So poll one, uh, round one, is we read the text. You're listening to the text, all right? Remember that? There were three reads and listening to the text. This is the fun part. This is the part where you listen for yourself in the first read. This is you becoming an intelligent mystic. This is you being spoken back to life again. This is you coming to the text. Your first read, you're going to study the Bible. Your first read is you're you're reading to soak your soul in the text. You're reading to luxuriate in the text. You're giving a slow, gentle read for you to be spoken back to life again. You're doing what Luther says. You're shutting up and you're listening. And you're letting God speak you back to life. Okay, that's your first read. That's a great read. Second read is you're going to enter the world of the text. This is all under round one. You're going to enter the world of the text. Who did not get these last time? I have some extra copies. This is round one and round two, so just pass them back to whatever. I only, I only have ten. Again, if I whoever wants to be the like, bearer of the manual, let me know. And at the end of this thing, then you can get everybody's email and send it off to them. All right. Your second read on listening to the text under round one is you're, you're listening to the world of the text. You're entering the world. You're going to put... You're going to see the world. You're going to feel the world. You're going to smell the world. You're going to get all your senses and your experiences, and you're going to get as experiential as you can be into the world of the text. You're going to be a time traveler. You're going to get out of your world. You're going to, you're going to approach the text completely naive, even though you might have read this text 50 million times you're going to approach this text like you are incredibly naive because the scriptures are living and active, they're not static, so you can come to any text because it's living and active and read it fresh with utmost naivete, like you don't know what this means. That's your second read. Enter the world of the text. What do you see? What do you smell? What do you taste? What? Ooh, is that interaction a good interaction or was that an abrasive interaction? You just you're just thinking that way. You're gonna to learn to think that way. When Paul's writing this, is he is he like happy? Or is he pissed off? Oops, that's taped. But, oh well. Um, is that how is he writing this? How is he writing this? Third read. Third read. You're reading for other people. You're thinking of loved ones. You're thinking of people you minister to. If, if this is going to be eventually a Bible study for other people, right? You start thinking about people that this is going to be a Bible study for. So you start thinking, you start thinking about uh, someone that struggles with same-sex desires. You start thinking about someone who's uh, a young mother and they lost their husband, or a, a young husband who's lost his wife. You just start thinking about, or he's someone who um, is skeptical. They don't believe that the Bible is the word of God. How do they hear this text? You're just putting yourself, and you're just starting your third read. You're just going to consider other people. You're learning to love other people even while you're doing a Bible study. Okay? All right, round two. Understand the text. Now you get analytical. Round one, you don't analyze. Round one is like you're an intelligent mystic, right? You're not just a mystic. You're an intelligent mystic. You're not just intelligent, you're an intelligent mystic. See? If you're just intelligent, you're going to be a know-it-all. Right? And you're not a lot of fun to be around. And you're not going to be just a mystic because you're like the Stay Parf Marshmallow guy in Ghostbusters. You're just walking around with a big old experience and emotion, and it's not intelligent. How do you know? As Dr. Haney used to always say to all his his charismatic friends, he would always say, well, you know that feeling that you have, how do you know that's not indigestion? I really want to know. So we're going to be intelligent and a mystic. We're going to be head and heart. We're going to have clarity to the mind, realness to the heart, okay? So now we're into understanding the text. And in round two, in understanding the text, you're going to do two things. First you're going to create a textual map and then the second thing you're going to do kind of together is have a running commentary. Now how you do this on your your computer or how you want to do it on a sheet of paper if you're old school, um, sky's the limit for you, however you want to do this. But the textual map, you're going to be itemizing main ideas and supporting ideas, you're going to itemize somehow you need something that's visual for you whatever your textual map is some of you are really really creative really really visual have fun whatever it looks like I've seen it all I've uh, been incredible visual maps that I've seen students do so far So you create a textual map and it's visual because you're gonna get out you're gonna itemize main ideas with their supporting ideas and you are just gonna have a visual map of it whoa that's like the that's the map of the forest The running commentary is going to go into this forest, and it's going to look at individual trees. And by looking at the trees and looking at the map, you're in that interaction of the whole and the parts, the whole and the parts, the whole and the parts. You're going to start moving what's going to be called the third round to discovering the text message. Right now, though, you have all the freedom to just geek out. Round two, man, is just geek out. This is analyze the text. This is create a textual map. Personally, what I do is I put uh, the main ideas to the left, flush on my Microsoft Word document, and then I usually have it in like 16-point bold font, my main ideas. Boom, 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 and they'll be numbered. I've got five main ideas in this passage. And then I will put 12-point font, indented, non-bold, would be the supporting ideas. And then there could be supporting ideas of supporting ideas. You really want to get crazy. That usually only happens in this stuff. That doesn't happen here. Here, you can be as grammatically geekish as you want to be. Okay? Now, you can have columns, like I could have my textual map over here and then I could have a column and I have my running commentary that would coincide. I tried that one, that didn't work so what I do is for me personally I will have one sheet of paper and I'll have bold main ideas, 16 point font, 12 point indented supporting ideas. Now I'm going to town like I'm going to underline main verbs. Now I'm doing the running commentary. I'm going to, okay, I need to do a word study on that word. What's this image mean? Lord is my shepherd. i got to figure out what that image of a shepherd means here, right? Now you're going into the trees. then if you look at this document that I gave you under round two, the running commentary would look like that interpretive toolbox. Do you see that? If you were to do a commentary, you would be looking and identifying things like these 11 things. Do you see them? You would look at significant words, significant ideas, significant images. If there's a repetition, it's significant. So always mark a repetition. You're going to look at connector words. What are connector words? And, but, for, therefores, right? Those are connector words. Um, Allusions and quotes from other places in the Bible. If a New Testament quotes something from the Old Testament, that's significant. If the Old Testament quotes another Old Testament, that's significant. Remember, if this is a highly selective theological history, everything's intentional. There's no wasted words. There's no wasted anything in the Bible. Okay. Then you look at um, characters and dialogue. If a character talks, whoa. Right. I mean, there's been like there's no one's talking except God in all of Genesis until man sees woman. And he doesn't talk. He sings. That's a huge deal. What if just think about this? The first human words were a song, a love song. That just in and of itself is, is just fascinating, isn't it? Maybe we were made for music. Then you've got scenes and places. You've got actions and events, historical background. I mean, what would be some historical background that would be, you know, pretty, you want to know about some historical background, just anything that you can think of, Old Testament, New Testament. Give an example. How about, like, Jonah... Why was he, why was Nineveh such a just like, he hate? Did, didn't you feel how much he hated the Ninevites? Well, maybe we ought to like, why would he hate them so? And then you start realizing that the Ninevites were the Assyrians. And you start realizing the Assyrians, their God was a war God. And they reflected his image incredibly well. And when an Assyrian would conquer you, if you survived, you didn't want to survive. But if you did survive, uh, they would fish hook you with your family through the mouth with a fish hook. That's why the fish was such a big deal. And they would drag you back to their, if you made it, drag you through the mouth like a fish taken back to their gods. They were notorious warriors, ruthless warriors. That's why when God says, your works have risen up to heaven, right? So it would be like, um, it'd be like, you, you know, your family being completely brutalized before your eyes, and now you've been called to go preach the good news to that, the offenders. It'd be that. You want to be unpopular in America? It would be like, you know, what if, yeah, the towers come down, um, and then people start saying, you know, I think we need to bring the gospel to the terrorists. It's that kind of nationalism, right? Israel hates Assyria, and if you want to be a, if you want to be a popular teleprophet, to go to Assyria is the end of your career. Right, you see. So historical background tells you all that stuff. So you just want to, you just get a good Bible encyclopedia. There's one volume dictionaries, and you look up Assyria, and you just kind of do some quick background. That would be running commentary kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Okay. And this last one is, is I think, the most important. Number eleven. You see it? The unexpected, unusual surprises out-of-place details, and questions that provoke you in the text, this is a great place for the deepest meaning to hide. I can almost guarantee you that 90% of your connections to Jesus are going to happen at number 11. If the Bible in the Old Testament raises questions that don't get answered, the answer is waiting for Jesus. We've talked about this. You cannot read the sacrifice, the apparent sacrifice of Isaac. You cannot read that intelligently without Jesus or you become really weird. Right? And that's why everybody freaks out. Liberals freak out over that passage. God's a baby killer. Yeah, child sacrifice, I thought he was against that. I think that's why didn't he punish the Canaanites for doing that, right? There's no... Um, there's no way to actually read that account fully and completely until you fill it in with Jesus. It's meant to keep, it's meant to say, keep reading. There's clues, right? You'll get a clue like, oh, wow, there's a ram caught in the thicket. Yeah, you're going to get clues. You're going to get a surplus of, you're going to get gospel threads but the ultimate meeting is not resolved until you get to Jesus. Where can you ultimately resolve justice and mercy until you get to the cross? You just can't. You get justice in the Bible, and you get mercy in the Bible. But the two don't coexist, hardly, until we get to Jesus. Because when a person gets mis- mercy, everybody's like like the Ninevites. God, how could you do that? Jonah, aren't you just? <laughs> right? And remember, that's exactly what Jonah said. I knew you were a merciful God. Do you remember that? He wanted justice. And that, yeah, yeah, fascinating stuff. So 11's a, a good one. Now, here's what we're going to do with our remaining time. I just want to expand your horizons. You, you are good with this, okay? You're good with this. You can do this. You can create a textual map right now. You can read your Bible, and you can say, what's the main ideas here? Well, you see, this is about, fill it in the blank. This is about this. This is about this. This is about, th- I've got three main ideas in this passage. It doesn't matter which genre you're at. You could be reading Proverbs. You can be reading uh, epistolary literature. You can read it and ask yourself, what is it saying? You can do that. Well, it's saying this. Well, there's a main idea. And it's saying this. Well, there's another main idea. And it's saying this. Well, there's another main idea. Well, what is it saying about what it's saying? Those are your supporting ideas. Well, it's saying this, and it's saying this about that. Right? You just itemized. You can do that. You can do that. What I'm giving you now is like, if if what we just looked at was grammar school, this would be like college work, okay? I'm going to give you college work now, okay? Um, But you're good to go right now. You can do this. You have the tool for your running commentary, the things to look for. Uh, It's important. Some of you, I need to say this because if you're like me, you approach things with a perfectionism and almost a weird obsession. So, When you come to the Bible, your goal is not to master it because you can't. You just can't. You're coming to be mastered, not to master. So you're going to pick highly significant, not everything on that tool list. You're not going to go through all 11 and just, you know, perfect it out. That is guaranteed to get you to hate studying the Bible. Okay? If you stick with round number one. And listen to the text. You're going you're gonna to love it. You're going to get to round two, and you're going to say, I'm just going to be very selective. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to look for key, since I know that I'm in poetry, I'm just going to look for the key images. That's all I'm going to do. That's it. And if you do that, you've just put yourself into a, you know, the nosebleeds of people that read their Bible intelligently. Because <laughs> most folks won't even do that, right? So that's fantastic you're there. So you can do that. Now, this is all college work kind of stuff. I'm going to give you a little more. For those of you who want a little bit more, just to kind of see how this might work on other what are called genres. And what a genre means is a literary form. So the Bible, think of the Bible as the Word of God, which it is. Think of it as water And literary forms are buckets that carry the water of the word to you. Different buckets, the water fills that bucket different. There are different shapes and size buckets. And the form sometimes is communicating the message itself. For instance, we go to apocalyptic. And what does John say in Revelation over and over and over again? I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. You are giving a literary form right here. So when you read Revelation, though you're, you're listening with your ears, your ears need to turn into eyes. Revelation is written for this generation. It is written for the visual people. Right? So, you know, those of us that think, you know, TV's evil and all that kind of stuff, well, I got news for you. God appeals right to the visual right here. Right? Now, TV still might be evil because not all images are good. Right? But the mode itself, the form, the visual is communicating, not not the hearing. You're meant to be seeing it. So, if you keep trying to say, well, I, don't, I just don't understand that, I don't understand that, then that's part of your problems because you're trying to understand it. See it first. Right? And the images are going to be Old Testament. And this keeps us from being really creepy and weird. Because when you read apocalyptic literature and you're going to try to find the main ideas by looking at what the visuals are communicating, If you're going to try to get the right main idea, the right interpretation of these images, you need to go to the Old Testament to get them because they're images from the Old Testament. They're not just images that you and me can fill in any meaning we want them to be. Case in point, people do Revelation and they say the grasshoppers are Black Hawk helicopters. Right? I have those books. Um, The... If you look at Revelation, all the plagues in Revelation are the plagues that happened at the Exodus. They're all images from the Exodus. So the Bible has actually given you what the image means. You just have to get to the Old Testament and figure out how it was used in the Old Testament. Okay. So anyhow... So if you were looking at apocalyptic literature, you just kind of know this. And again, I have this for you. So if you're in, let's say you wanted to do Revelation, you would go, it's in here. You would look at the apocalyptic and you say, oh, I'm going to be looking at visual things. That's how I'll do my textual map. I'm going to look at the images. Right? Well, I better figure out who the dragon is. And what the dragon's about, what are dragons in the Old Testament? The Leviathan, come from the deep, come from chaos. Ooh, right? You're, you're going to do that. Now, let's start here because this is a major one. Paul's letters are called propositions, or all the letters in the Bible are propositions. This is, this is raw main ideas, supporting ideas, Okay? Uh, what you're going to do to find the main ideas and propositions, you're going to just take a paragraph. So if you were studying uh, Ephesians, don't, don't well, don't, don't do Ephesians this time because you'll just get decimated. You got that first run-on sentence, that's not going to help you. And then the prayer that we're going to look at this Sunday is another long on run-on sentence. So first one was 202, this one's 169, one sentence again. Do something like um, Peter. <laughs> do something like Philippians. Philippians is a good one. It's nice blocks, nice, concise paragraphs, right? So you pick a paragraph, and in that paragraph, you underline the main ideas. What, do you, what are the main verbs there? What would be the supporting ideas? Well, you do things like, um, what I do is this. And you can look at my Bible, and and I can show it to you, and you can see it. When I'm in Propositions, you will see I will take out, here are my my equipment, my 0.5 millimeter mechanical pencil, and my ruler, six inches. This is very, very important. You don't want a plastic one because they break. You want a metal one. Got it? Now, what I will do, like for instance, what I did... What I've been doing in Ephesians, I will go in and I'll do my, I'm in doing this, right? I'm doing this. But I like to have my .5 millimeter and I will underline the main verbs. Okay, so the, the text that we're going to be preaching through, this one thought unit has three main ideas. Okay? And you can do it just visually by looking at my pencil. Then I will see, oh, my word, this main idea, there's a participle. And there's an infinitive. And I loop it. I loop a participle and I loop an infinitive because those are dependent ideas. Loop dependent, right? So they're saying something about this. This is how geekish you can get. You with me? And you can do like, oh, this has got a prepositional phrase. This is a relative, you know, a relative pronoun. Uh, And again, you would see in my Bible loops, but I'm only doing significant ones. I'm not doing all of them. I lost count over in him in Ephesians. I lost count at like 28 in the first chapter. In him, in him, in him, in him, preposition. In him. And then the in him would start four verses of another thing being said about in him. Right? Or in whom, depending on your translation. So that's how you do propositions. Does that make sense? And then the other thing, if you want, this is what I would do. Um... I put a box around key words, key key ideas and key images. I put a box around. So if I was in Psalm 23 and it said, the Lord is my shepherd, I'd box shepherd. And what that tells me by boxing it with my pencil, it says, you need to know what that means. If I'm in Romans 3 and it talks about, uses a word like propitiation, I'm boxing propitiation. I need to know what propitiation means. Justification, I'm boxing justification, right? If it says, uh, oh, he pleaded with them. It might be the main verb, but it might be a key idea I need to know too. What does it mean to, what does it mean to plead here? Is he pleading because he's angry? Is he pleading because his heart is breaking? Which one is it? you look it up now i put a circle around key people and places so you can go through my bible and you say okay that's a person i need to figure out who that is i don't know who that is i'm gonna have to figure it out who's antipathous i don't know i better figure that out right uh if it's a key place uh yeah i better you know samaria he it said that he had to go through samaria why did he have to go through samaria So what's the big deal about Samaria? It's the first time it came up in John. Like you're reading about it, you've never heard of Samaria, and all of a sudden it shows up with the lady at the well, but it shows up. Remember, you're naive. You've been reading so far, you haven't heard of Samaria. He's never mentioned Samaria, but now all of a sudden, he has to go there. (laughs) So I'm going to circle Samaria because I'm going to know I need to figure that one out. All right? So key people and places I circle, key ideas and images I box. And if it is absolutely like stunning, breathtaking, startling, surprising, crazy, off-the-wall kind of stuff, I'll underline it twice. That's just me. You can do this. You can figure something like this out for you, right? But that's just a nice visual map. So you could study your Bible, create a textual map in your Bible without even getting out your Microsoft Word and get in detail. I could do it just by doing this, looking at my loops and my underlines that makes sense? All right. Narrative. Really quick. Narrative. You're going to pay attention to setting, characters, and the storyline. And sometimes the storyline's resolved. Sometimes the storyline's not resolved. That's how you're going to find your main ideas. I guarantee you if a setting's mentioned, that's a main idea. Guarantee you. If a character's mentioned, I guarantee you it's a main idea. That character's there for a reason. So that character might be like, um, well, the king. Let's go back to Jonah. The king is mentioned. Why the king? Well, he was mentioned, and he's the only person in Nineveh that's identified. The king. And then, what, 5,000 cattle? This is just weird. It gets weirder as you read it, right? When I mean, You start thinking about it this way. You start all of a sudden following characters and you realize of all this incredible city, one person's identified the king and a bunch of cattle. Why? You know, that'd be like one of these startling things. Wow, God really cares about cows. Right? (laughs) And then you go into the plot line. The plot line is like, this is a story about what? Answer that question. If you're doing narrative... And you're studying, and remember, when you're studying narrative, you're studying one story. You're not going to go take on a string of three stories to study. You're going to study one story, one story. When you're doing propositions, you're doing one thought unit, one thought unit, not three, not four, one thought unit. A paragraph is one thought unit. You string them together, you can create one thought unit with five paragraphs if you want to. But you're going to need to know what each of these thought units were to understand what this one was. Does that make sense? All right, narrative. Narrative. And then you get to poetry, what you're going to be following is the images. So uh, what's the uh, main idea? You're going to find all the images, and you're just going to list out the images. Well, there are four images in here. Okay, well, there's your four main ideas. Got it? And then you're going to say, well, what is it saying about those images? You're going to have to figure that out. And then wisdom, when you're in wisdom... Wisdom, what wisdom is doing is that basically God has made the world a certain way. The world is laud. It's the the spiritual fabric of the way things work. It's it's the good, the beautiful, and the true. Uh, The world was made uh, for God's glory and for human flourishing. So embedded into the world, wisdom, embedded into the world, is the spiritual fabric of the universe. Embedded, it is the ordered and the structured of the good, the beautiful, and the true. So embedded into this world is how you work, how relationships work, how uh, the earth works, how everything is supposed to work, right? So wisdom usually is telling you this is the way it's supposed to work. This is the way things are supposed to be. But what's going to happen is, is that you know there's going to be like this over-idealistic wisdom. It's, like, it's almost like sometimes the Bible talks like there wasn't a fall. Have you ever noticed that? Like in Proverbs, some things are mentioned like, gosh, everything's perfect and grand and great. It's ideal, right? And then all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose and you read Ecclesiastes. And you wonder, is there anything good going on in the world? Did anything survive the fall, right? So wisdom, you have the fabric of creation, and you also have the futility in creation, what sin has done to the patterns. You have the regular patterns of creation, law, and then you have the decreative forces now at work, the dark powers now at work in creation. Wisdom literature talks about both of them. This is why we become really, really moralistic in wisdom literature because we take this fabric of creation and we read it like there wasn't a fall. Oh, yeah, 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 this is the way it's supposed to be. I can do that. Right? This is this is sexuality in the Bible. Let's say it's, it's mentioned in Proverbs. Oh, yeah, 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 I'm good. No one's good. Right? I mean, the Bible's going to actually say that. No one's good. No, not one. Right? So... Just remember that when you get to wisdom, the two things that you're going to be looking for is the regular patterns of creation, the way things were meant to be, and then the futility of that fabric because of sin. That's how you're going to find your main ideas and supporting ideas in wisdom literature. Okay. Now this is really, I'm giving you a lot. I feel like we've got to stop. But here you go. If you want to geek out, you can geek out. This will be on that sheet. You don't need to be. You right now, can do this. You can understand the text by doing this. Itemize main and supporting ideas. You can do that right now. Any genre. And you can do a running commentary by picking today, like I told the apprentices, I said, listen, this time around, you know, pick maybe two on that list on the running commentary you're going to run down. Then the next time you study, pick two different ones. If it had an allusion to an Old Testament text, pick that one next time. Tackle it. Oh, I wonder what this passage means. Why is this passage in the... Why did he record this in the New Testament? Run that down. Okay? Questions, y'all, so far on understanding the text. I will give you my little slash dash deal too, if you would like. What to underline, what to box. I have it all here. Okay? I will not give you a millimeter... Pencil or ruler. You are on your own for that. What? Yeah. Ooh, that's good. Yes, yes, you will because you can't help it, right? Once you've got, once you've, once you've done this, you now see the text differently, and. When this happens, what's going to happen when we're going to discover the message of the text, you are now going to read it that way. And that's where your meditation, you're going to have a lot more meditation is going to happen after this. I mean, this is really important. It's kind of scary, but it is kind of important. It's hard to meditate on the text when you don't know the meaning of it, right? that's why we we do a lot we don't meditate a lot in our generation because we don't know the meaning of the text right so here's what's so exciting when you guys when we study now a particular text you now have it you understand it to a degree so you can actually now start thinking about it does that make sense you're now free to think about it and remember what we're talking about here is you're reading to listen And as as you read to listen and you kind of understand what's going on, now the Holy Spirit is taking that text and giving you clarity to the mind and realness to the heart, and now it turns into actual communion with God and prayer for yourself, prayer for people, right? It's just the way it works. Reading leads to thinking in the presence of God, Thinking in the presence of God is communing with Him. You start talking to Him. You're listening, and you are under. You're thinking about this particular thing. When you're thinking, is really when you're thinking about something. That's God actually directing you. <laughs> that's how you listen, uh, and then that turns into prayer, and that's what this whole dynamic becomes. And so, if it becomes that round one, it's going to become this in round three. After we've done this, it's going to get a little more informed. Yes, what's the, oh, underlining, of course. And the double underlines are very, very important. You cannot, you absolutely cannot have a really, really nice Bible with really, really good paper. And if you use a pen, I'll kill you. You need a .5 millimeter pencil and you want your ruler and you can do things like this. Here, Here let's do Ephesians, so you can just kind of take a look at Ephesians. This is Ephesians 1. I don't know if you can see it, but you can just see there's, this is a .5 millimeter. I will have things written in the side of ideas that will strike me. If you go over to like, uh, yeah, here's Colossians 3. I don't know if you can see that at the top. Nobody can see that? (laughs) All right, all right, all right. Come up after and you can look at it. Come up after and you can look at it. Oh no, no, no! My wife does that. It drives me absolutely. I look at her Bible. I'm like, ah! It's just color coded, and it's pen, and it's. I'm I, I I I get appalled. I'm like I, I I can't even talk to you, honey, for a week. I really can't. That is just. Yeah, so you could do whatever is good for you. No. Well, you got, what you want to do, honestly, this has been so helpful. You want to have a Bible that has wide margins so you can write in it, all right? And honestly, y'all, this is like, I don't know how many Bibles I'm into right now, but you know, I'll probably go five years with a Bible, and I'm done. It's over. My love affair with this one's done, and I pick up another one, and I start all over again. So, the kids maybe will each be able to get a Bible that I've kind of gone through and preached through, or taught through, or whatever. You know what I mean? So it's kind of cool. Can't stand red letter. Uh huh. Yeah, I ain't. Listen, y'all, you're asking for my opinion. I'm on tape, and I'm also I've been sick, so I'm a little like on the salty side right now. What about digital? What do you mean? Oh, yeah, that's that's fine. That's good. No, you cannot. You can't. But I, I love mine. I, if you want a really, really good, if you have a Mac, if you're a Mac person, you want to get Accordance Bible software. Best, best one out there. It's really expensive, just telling you. <laughs> okay. Um, any other questions, y'all? Where to do this? Yeah, I I would say y'all take um, take Rome. What was the text we did? Romans 10, 1 through. What was it? Do you remember? Yeah, Romans 10, one through one through. Someone look at Romans ten and and see. Tell me what the paragraph is. Yeah, if you want to start somewhere, this is like in the apprenticeship program. This is the first text we did. A text for every genre. This would be a. This is a good one to start off with. Romans ten. And it goes one through, anybody have that? One through four? four? Okay, that's the paragraph, one through four. Got it? Start with that one. Yeah, Yeah, start with that. And then uh, then we'll do a narrative. I'll give you a narrative one after that. Okay, do we have anybody that wants to be like the email person? You got it, Denton? Denton's got it. So Denton's going to take all your emails. If you want a hard copy of this so that you can... Copy it anytime you want. Get your email to him and and Denton will send me an email and I will send him a copy and he'll get it out to you, okay? Next week, we're going to look at round three. Discover the text's meaning. You're going to be looking for three things. So you've done all this hard work. All this hard work. This This is the hard work part, round two. This is rolling up the sweet, you're sweating. This is the sweat equity comes at this time. All right. What you're going to do in round three is you're now going to make an interpretive decision. You're going to now interpret. We're going to put up our big boy pants, and we're going to boldly interpret the text. Okay, And we're going to interpret the text in three, three directions. One's called the human condition of the text. One's called the big idea of the text. The other's called the applied big idea of the text. I will explain those to you. But at the end of round three, you will have a sticky statement of each of these or a vivid image of each of these. And you are well on your way to having poll number one done. Poll number one will be done at the end of round three. And here's so you can kind of get a big picture of what we're doing. These three ideas... Human condition, big idea, applied big idea. Those are actually going to be your gospel threads. Okay? And you're going to pick one of them to connect to Jesus with. You're going to pick the one that's most dominant. But any of those three you can connect to Jesus with. Okay? And then round four, we're actually going to connect. And by the end of round four, you're going to have a textual Jesus. And in round five, you're gonna put this thing together in a communication piece. You're gonna create a message and build a map for that message. Okay, and that's it, and you're done. So you just accomplished the nitty-gritty, what is typically called Bible study. Right, But I'm gonna take you a little further to round two, I mean to uh, pull two. All right, amen, go in peace.